Hi, I'm Kat Holbrook, cook, lover of British produce and host of The Doorstep Kitchen. Welcome and thanks for tuning into the show which celebrates the best food and drink found on our doorsteps. On this episode, I'm speaking to chef and food sustainability advocate Xanthi Gladstone and Fergus the Forager is joining us with an explanation of the strawberry tree. But first, here's my update from the food world. Sky Gingles Low Waste Restaurant in Somerset House has launched a spring to go and the larder of ingredients looks so good. I got my eye on the jams and preserves which include a beetroot and rose geranium jam, red wine figs, prune jam and apple butter. They also do veg boxes and amazing looking sourdough. Out of nowhere, London stalwart The River Cafe has decided to expand with a new restaurant called Sylvia's, which opened on the 3rd of December. The new place, adjacent to the esteemed Hammersmith restaurant, says the menu will have great pastas, risottos and soups, with the real emphasis on winter vegetables as a main course. Think baked ricotta, roasted trevise, artichokes alla romana, and of course, the River Cafe desserts. To make it really special and festive, there'll be a pianist this month. Lastly, continuing my ideas for a doorstep Christmas, London-based artist Hannah Waters has some beautiful food and nature-inspired paintings that will make any cook happy this Christmas. There's delicately drawn peas, radishes, cabbage and festive prints of mistletoe, pine cones and poinsettia. She also does table linen and beautiful greeting cards. Check them out at hannahwaters.com. So those are your three foodie things on our doorstep this week. Now I'm joined by Xanthi. My guest today is a chef, grower of delicious produce, baker and director of food and sustainability and multiple family businesses. She's the proud owner of 20 Hens and the co-founder of London-based veggie supper club Knuckle. She's on a mission to educate people on food sustainability and studied this at the world-renowned Ballymaloo Cookery School in Ireland. Welcome, Xanthi Gladstone. Hi, Xanthi. Hi, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Are you in Wales at the moment? I am in Wales, yeah. You're in Wales. How was your in lockdown? In rainy Wales. <laughs> yeah, it's fine, it's fine. I mean, it's just it just gives me the opportunity to kind of get on with stuff without distraction, really. Yeah, it's probably um, quite handy and, you know, you've got lots yeah. to, to do in the garden, I imagine. Yeah, it is handy. I mean, obviously it has its downsides for sure, like it does for everyone, but yeah. it has given me the opportunity just to have no distractions, have no, you know, travel involved. Before lockdown, I moved quite a lot back and forward to London. So mm-hmm. it just takes out that element of having to plan traveling and be in a place for a few days and then move again. It's just meant that I my time has been way more productive. But I'm quite sick of it now. I want it to all be over and things go back to normal. I know, it doesn't look like anything's going to be quite normal until like no. March, is it now? Mm. Oh, so depressing. I know. Um, so, Xanthi, you're in Wales at the moment, but you also do some stuff in Scotland and London and you're the Director of Food and Sustainability at your family's Good Life Festival. Mm-hmm. You have a lot going on. Um, do you want to give us a bit of an overview as to like, the main things you're up to? Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, in the last kind of two years, actually, basically almost two years exactly, I just, yeah, I dedicated myself to food and sustainability as a career. Um, and I started working for my parents a couple of days a week and doing a few different things alongside that. But 
I think since I started as director of food and food sustainability, I've just picked up so much. I've learned so much um, just about kind of what really goes into running a food business, um, running a hospitality business and all the, you know, it's made me have such a huge appreciation for restaurants and um, other hospitality sectors. And it's just, yeah, it's really opened my eyes. I mean, I'm learning so much. We work with a chef, um, as a consultant at our farm shop, which is where I'm kind of mainly based. Um, and he helps us develop menus and look at our food sourcing and look at our kitchen and mm -hmm. the organization of it. And it's just com been completely mind blowing in the last couple of months, just learning from him, um, picking up so much. But I mean, so what I'm trying to say in, in the in a shorter way is that it, it's just really varied my job. So um, obviously before lockdown, I was doing more events, more supper clubs and mm. in-person events. And now it's much more, yeah, I'm based here with the family businesses that are here in Wales. Um, I, yeah, I grow some food for the farm shop. I have 20 hens, which take up quite a lot of time. <laughs> and yeah, it's it's really great. I love it. And is the, um, so in Wales, is, is there three different arms to the business? Yeah. Um, you've got like huts and retreats, kind of a little cottages and stuff right that's so that's in scotland so that's in scotland okay okay so that's in northeast scotland um really beautiful that's where we grew up so my parents have just turned some properties that they owned into that were kind of almost derelict into um holiday accommodation and people have just absolutely loved it and it's doing really well so that's great and amazing. every time i go there when i see people there i'm like god it's so amazing there are people here because when we grew up we were literally you know, we'd go like a week without seeing another person. Um, <laughs> and now all these people get to enjoy it. I'm sure they've been really popular over lockdown. Yes. And, well, not lockdown, sorry, like over, you know, the British summer mm -hmm. staycation. Yeah. All of that. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> it was right time, wasn't it? Yeah, definitely. So that's in Scotland. And then in Wales, there's the farm shop. So Wales is a farm shop. We've also got a pub, but that's actually been closed since March. Mm. Um, and we haven't reopened it yet just because... We don't want to go through the whole reopening and reclosing and I know. all of that stuff. Um, and so our idea was just to focus on the farm shop and make that really great and make that thrive and use all our kind of team in one place. And then when we're in a stronger position, we can reopen the pub. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And did I read somewhere that your aim with the farm shop is to grow kind of everything yourself that supplies the farm shop eventually eventually <laughs> it's yeah it's I mean I'm sure have you ever grown vegetables so oh god well very mindly and I actually <laughs> want to speak to you about your tips for like growing yeah growing stuff because I think a lot of people have been getting into gardening and the yeah. tiniest space you know so I'm in London at the moment mm -hmm. but I grew up in Wiltshire and when I ever when I go down there like I help my mom in the garden a bit and yeah and I grew like carrots when I was really young and it was the most exciting thing ever pulling them out the ground yeah it basically got me into veggies when I was really young yeah um actually my mom said when I was about five and I was growing these carrots I couldn't wait till they were big <laughs> so I dug these <laughs> carrots out it was oh. probably like half a bite but I was so excited I couldn't wait oh, it is the best feeling especially there's something about carrots as well it's just because you yeah. can't see it growing and then when you pull it out it's this huge amazing carrot um yeah no so I so where I grow vegetables here is um a really really old Victorian walled garden um and the wall garden 
once upon a time was used to grow vegetables for the whole village and it had like you know 100 people working in there and I've just been ta- I've taken up a tiny corner of it and my chickens take up another corner of it but um yeah my aim in the next sort of I don't know five years would be to take back the whole wall garden um because some of it's all looked after but it's not it's got you know fruit trees and some wild plants but I would love to sort of reinvent the whole thing um Mm. and have yeah have all the vegetables for the farm shop from there but I just it's just making the time for it because it really is a full-time thing that element Mm. but yeah I love it so I've got a tiny garden London and I would I really want to plant some stuff have some veg beds um yeah do all of that I do think it's a bit more difficult in London Mm. and I think people are always looking for like easy things that they can grow um, or maybe plant now so what kind of stuff what would be your like top tips for people who want an edible garden yeah so I mean one of my favorite things to grow is herbs yeah um I think like I use herbs fresh herbs in my cooking every single day whether it's rosemary thyme sage oregano mint and I have that all growing here but that's all stuff that can grow really well in pots as well Mm. so I think I would always advise someone to just get even if it's just a rosemary a small rosemary bush or a little thyme plant um I think herbs is such a good place to start and they're such a nice addition and also I feel that sometimes the supermarket packets because they come in that sort of plastic packaging and you use them for one meal and then they go bad so quickly so quickly Um, yeah and then I would say something else that's good to grow and quite quick is salad leaves which again like I think shop-bought leaves are such a different such a different vegetable to um, salad leaves that you grow yourself the taste is just so different to me Um, and again you can grow that in quite like a shallow bed or container because it doesn't need that much soil underneath it and then microgreens you can grow inside so they could just go on a windowsill in a little container and I don't know if this is right but I think it is they're like 40 times as nutritious as their as the you know vegetable equivalent to them so if you want a bit of kind of homegrown nutrition that's not quite a nice way to get that in and they also make quite a nice topping for dishes so yeah those are the things I would start with Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that makes sense easy wins quick Mm. wins yeah yeah exactly (laughs) and then you can move on to the slightly more complicated things but can you plant some stuff now it's coming into winter I think rocket's sort of an all-rounder isn't it you could probably plant some of that yeah so there are a lot of there are a lot of leafy greens um, that do really well over winter, like pak choy, spinach. Mm. You could also, I mean, this is more for people who have maybe out of London gardens um, or bigger gardens in London. But in maybe a month or two ago, I just planted absolutely tons of garlic in my beds, and that basically will. It will only arrive at the same time as the garlic would have next year, but it's basically a really nice way to keep your soil really nutritious um, because the more that's in the soil, the more it, you know, the more it grows in nutrients and the more that it benefits. So it's quite nice to over, that's called overwintering. Um, then you can do that with carrots. You can plant cauliflower at this time of year. 
onions. So there is quite a lot. I will put my hands up and say that I'm not as keen on winter gardening as I am on summer gardening. That's one of my aims next year is to be more on it with my winter planting. But I just, I just way prefer being out in the sunshine than out in the frosty rain yeah and especially in north wales like the the climate mm. (laughs) (laughs) it it can definitely be tricky for sure yeah i'm sure and then um just moving on to the good life festival which looks incredible um so that's a family-run festival isn't it yes yeah and how long have you run that for so i think this year would have been our seventh year but it didn't go ahead this year, obviously. No, sadly. But next year? Next year it is going ahead, so we're actually changing the date. Um, so it's going to be happening in end, last weekend of April. Um, that normally gets super booked out, so... Uh, yeah. Need to get on that. Get your tickets. <laughs> <laughs> and what's the food like there? Because you're in charge of the f- yeah, food and sustainability there. Yeah, I mean, the, this year was supposed to have been the sort of first year I was lots more involved than previous years. My kind of role in it has increased every year. So my mum and I, so my parents are the co-founders of the festival, and my mum and I run up the food side. We have this big fire pit, um, which the chefs do their demos on, um, which is always amazing. <clears throat> so we've always had like a really great lineup of chefs on there. Mm-hmm. Um And then we do feasts in the greenhouse, which is where I grow, which has got a really nice table in it. And we also do like fireside feasts. Um, Lovely. So, yeah, I think my involvement in the festival when I first kind of came on board and was involved in the food was really like the thing that inspired me to get into the food industry. Because, yeah, I mean, there are some incredible people that we've had there. And I think it's always just been filled with this really inspirational energy and lots of amazing panels and talks. And it's just like, yeah, it's always been hugely inspiring for me. And just being a part of that is is really great. Yeah, it does sound like a really inspiring festival to go to. Mm -hmm. Very wholesome and, yeah, just like really lovely um, scenery as well. Yeah, exactly. Oh, well, hope. I mean, I'm sure it'll go ahead next year, like. Fingers, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed, Um, yeah. Because I'm sure you put so much work into it. And you trained, um, so you're quite self-taught, but you also did the kind of sustainable cooking course at Ballymaloo, didn't you? Yeah, I did. What was that like? Yeah, it was incredible. It's such an amazing place. um, And again, just really inspired me to kind of keep sticking at it. Um, The course itself is amazing, but also just being on the farm there, being really near the sea, getting to swim before school every day. Um, They have amazing produce there. Mm. They, you know, I went from not really eating dairy to basically like eating cheese and butter straight from the cow pretty much. Um, And their, you know, their hen's eggs and the most incredible vegetables from their garden. So that, yeah, it was really inspiring and such a great time. And what kind of key things did you learn there about food and sustainability? Like, and what kind of are your top tips for people who want to be a bit more sustainable with their food? So I'll say the first bit first. The thing that I sort of picked up that felt the most important there was that everything is connected in the food system. So there are so many different aspects to it. Like thinking of solutions, you know, if you've got lots of food waste... What do you want to do with it? How do you want to use it? Well, you could compost if it's vegetable waste and it's not cooked and it hasn't got dairy or meat products in it. And then if you do have those kind of cooked food waste, then maybe get a pig or 
think of other ways to use it and then you know mm. what do you do with your eggshells because they don't really want to go in the compost because they'll attract rats well maybe you'll dry them out and you'll use them as slug repellent because the slugs don't like going on them because they're really spiky and it's just challenging the norm and you know how we've become really adapted to being really I guess lazy mm. with just kind of seeing food as an end product and then you get rid of it but actually Ballymaloo really like opened up my eyes to seeing this as like a full circuit and being responsible for every element of waste that you produce um and also just like allowing quality ingredients to sing in a dish and looking at food in a really simple way but when you have you can be it can be really simple when the ingredients are really high quality yeah not overcomplicating things yeah so yeah I guess my second my tip for like being more sustainable when it comes to cooking is just like really trying to really trying to value food and not see it as you know something to fill you up but actually something that can you know can benefit you nutritionally and also it can give you a lot of joy eating really good quality food and then you know what are the repercussions of the food decisions we make like could you check on the package where your foods comes from you know it doesn't matter if you're buying it from the supermarket and it's not organic but like maybe you could try and just buy stuff that's grown in Europe or even just the UK or look at stuff that's a bit more accessible as every day and then maybe if you really want to treat you know and you'd have an avocado once a week or a roast chicken once a week rather than looking at these kind of it's really hard for us to make the decisions because the supermarkets and big companies have made it so easy to have any food you want at any time and really cheaply. Yeah, I think we do need to value, I mean, the UK spends the, the least amount of money on food um, than any other country in Europe or it's some stat like that. Mm. Um, and I, yeah, I think you're totally right. We don't value food in the way that other people do. Yeah. Um, and, and it's so accessible. So you can get blueberries from Peru at any time of year, for example. I know. And, you know, it's when you're thinking, oh, what should I have for breakfast? And the blueberries are there. It's so easy to pick them up. But I think, yeah, connecting people with seasons and, and all of that's important. Yeah, I don't think sort of individual... I mean, we can all make individual choices that are better if we have the... If we have the... Um, you know, we can, because a lot of people are on are on a much tighter budget than maybe you or I and you know they can't afford to make these decisions because money is at the forefront but I think you know for those of us who are lucky enough to be able to consider slightly different choices I think that's something that you can really prioritize and the bigger companies and supermarkets they make it easier for us but we have to kind of fight back and and vote with our food choices. Mm-mm. Yeah, so the kind of power of the consumer. Um, yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah. So you mentioned you had 20 hens. Yes. Um, how, how long have you had those for? I've always wanted hens. Um, and I was literally on the verge of getting them at the beginning of lockdown. And then lockdown happened. Um, so I got my first hens in June. I got three to begin with. Um, and then I got 10 more. And then I got the rest maybe a month later. And are they all the same? Are they like bantam or so i had some bantams but i actually gave them to a friend because um they were being bullied by my bigger hens um i think because there are so many of them they have like the mentality of like a bit of a crew so if they're picking on one they're really picking on one which is so heartbreaking yeah and they're happy now they're being looked after by my friend's children and, <laughs> and just like little garden pets which is sweet um <laughs> but the majority are 
just your average ginger layers and they're hilarious and really good fun and they lay beautiful eggs and then I've got sort of five different varieties and it's funny seeing all the different personalities within that <laughs> and do they produce quite different eggs yeah like, some like really kind of golden yolks or um yeah what, what are the best yeah so the shells are really different and they vary in size massively um I've got one hen that, that is just laying double yolks at the moment which is nice yeah and I think I actually read that that's something to do with hormone imbalance but I think it's because she's quite a young hen um so her hormones are changing and she's really she's a huge hen so I think that also has something to do with it she's just producing these massive eggs good for pasta <laughs> yes exactly how many eggs are you getting a week like can you supply the farm shop with some of them yeah so they lay between about 11 and 15 eggs a day okay which I think is really good um, I think it's slowing slightly as the weather's getting colder and, you know, a hen needs a certain amount of daylight hours a day to lay an egg. And obviously the daylight is just slowly, slowly getting shorter and shorter. Dwindling. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, the least they've, they've laid in a day is 11. So I think that's pretty good. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So you're, you're, I read on your website that your mission is to educate people that the positive effects that the right food choices can have on ourselves and the environment, mm-hmm. which I think is a really great mission to, to have. And recently I saw that you co-founded a kind of supper club food business with your boyfriend, Hugo. Yeah. Knuckle. Um, so is that something you're trying to do through, through that supper club as well? Yes, that's kind of why we started the supper club, I think. Um, I was doing them by myself to begin with, and then Hugo kind of started helping me more and more because it's just so much work. And then we just really went on from there, I think. We worked with some really great chefs and in some really cool venues across London. And I think I just love the idea of everyone. Yeah, it's that thing that I was talking about earlier and that I kind of allude to on my website is that, like, the idea of sustainable food doesn't have to be this like big scary topic that's really inaccessible for people like we wanted to make it really fun and you know people without realizing we're eating only vegetables from the UK and um, some cheese from Somerset and some burrata that was made in London and Mm. that's like doesn't have to be this big sort of scary topic which often climate change and you know the agricultural system can be I think that supper club was really just to highlight that it can be enjoyable and fun and learning experience and all of that. At the end of the day, like it's quite simple, like quite simple choices you can make. Yeah. Brilliant. And just before I ask you my final question, are there any other people in the UK or companies that you think are worth like a shout out for food and sustainability if people want to learn more? Oh, there are so many. Um, there are so many like in different kind of areas. I just actually come across this oyster company called Cape Wrath which is based in Scotland and they are producing the most amazing oysters and oysters have lots of really beneficial effects on sea life um, so that's like a really great seafood to be able to eat and, and a small business to support. Mm-hmm. Um, have you heard of Farmerama? Yeah, really love the podcast. Yeah, so there was a they they had a, their farms to feed us um, podcast series, which was incredibly inspiring, and that series in, involved a lot of the people that I really looked to for inspiration. And um, 
there's a there's a woman called um, Karen O'Donoghue, and she runs a company called The Happy Tummy Co. And she's she was based in Sussex, but she's actually just moved back to Ireland. Um, and she, I think, Karen's ethos is so inspiring. She's um, a sourdough baker, and, and her whole thing is you know using ancient grains and heritage grains and slowly fermented bread. And she's also really into um, spreading the positive word about like natural wine and trying to make that more accessible and and yeah I mean there are loads there are absolutely loads I would be here forever if I was listing all the people yeah brilliant no that's a nice couple of recommendations mm-hmm. um so my last question is something that I ask all my guests and it's what is your favorite British seasonal ingredient right now well one of the things that I'm really trying to do this winter is and I've just been writing a lot of recipes in the last couple of weeks is um trying to make people excited about winter vegetables because I think summer vegetables get the spotlight so much um you know you've got the tomatoes and the courgettes and the peas and the beans and all the amazing produce that you get in the summer and then Mm. when you get to winter everyone is just like oh you know pretty uninspired (laughs) um yeah it's like oh another swede in my veg box you know it gets a little bit monotonous yeah exactly yeah kale and like a few carrots it's just a bit yeah i mean i absolutely love mushrooms um i love cooking with mushrooms but i also love i'm such a mushroom nerd it's embarrassing but i just (laughs) really learned about them this season and um really learned about like how incredible they are for nature and the sort of biodiversity and what their relationship is with trees and what you know how they can benefit us in so many ways and and this was the first autumn that I really got confident with mushroom foraging by myself so we're coming to the end so maybe this is cheating slightly because the mushrooms are really disappearing in these kind of couple of weeks but I would have to say mushrooms I actually came across, um, so I walk my dogs kind of the same route every morning and I came across this pile of dead wood like a, maybe a month ago and I found some oyster mushrooms on it and they've basically, it's basically been my own like private oyster mushroom farm since then. They've just been continuously growing every time I pick them and I think, oh, I wonder if those are the last ones when I come back a couple of days later, the mushrooms are back. So um that's incredible what a find yeah (laughs) so that's been great I know I'll be so sad when they eventually go which I think is coming around the corner yeah I know I'd love to get more into mushrooms um Mm -hmm. there's a couple of great books that I need to buy um I do kind of chanterelles winter chanterelles you know summer ones uh hedgehog yeah hedgehog are amazing they're so tasty and those are kind of my those are my go-to, which I'm 100% confident on. Yeah. But yeah, I'd love to get more into it. Um, so on the podcast every week, we have Fergus the Forager, and he was talking about wax cat mushrooms. Yes. Uh, which are just like beautiful and like so many different colours. So, um, and there's that documentary out, isn't there? The Fantastic Fungi. I haven't watched it, have you? Yes. Oh my God, it's so good. <gasps> oh, I, yeah, it's on my list. Yeah, you have, to, you have to watch it. Literally, as soon as we finished it, I said to my boyfriend, can we watch it again? <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's just super, yeah, it's amazing. Definitely watch it. Brilliant. Oh, well, it was lovely to speak to you. Thank you. Um, thank you so much for sharing your insight on food and sustainability. Of course. Thank you for having me. Before we end today's show, we'll be hearing from Fergus Drennan, aka Fergus the Forager. 
He's a wild food experimentalist, educator, and runs regular immersive foraging courses. At this time of year, when we're thinking about decorating Christmas trees with tinsel and red baubles and other things, I think, where did that inspiration come from? We can look around and perhaps see holly with its red berries or perhaps even the iconic fly garrick mushroom, the red one with the white spots, which is linked to Christmas tradition. But I think the strongest candidate is one of my favourite plants to forage from at this time of year, which is the strawberry tree. Now, the strawberry tree is wonderful because apart from perhaps rose hips and sloes, medlars, windfall crab apples, possibly some lingering rowan berries and gilder roseberries, there isn't much fruit around. But the fruit of the strawberry tree is amazing and delicious. So why does it look like red baubles? Well, I guess because the fruit, which are about the size, like diameter of a 10 pence piece, are round and red. So looking a little bit like a strawberry. Now, the name Arbutus unido is kind of related to what Pliny said about it, which Pliny the Elder, the naturalist, to give him his full name, Gaius Plinius Secundus, a wonderful name, so let's use it in full. But he said, unum tantum ido, meaning I only eat one. Now, it's not really known whether he said this because he thought the fruit wasn't really worth eating or that it was so nourishing and delicious that you only needed to eat one. But the general consensus when you look around, um, search, do a search about this plant, is that this phrase, only eat one, is considered to mean that it's not very nice. But this couldn't be further from the truth. Now, in its natural range, the plant, it's a tree, it's a shrub. It's a shrub that grows up to about 10 metres, really, at its most. An evergreen shrub with lovely dark green, glossy leaves. And yeah, in its kind of native range, which is kind of really the whole Mediterranean region, people do know that you can use this plant. And what they generally use it for is these fruit to make kind of wine um, and even a spirit. In, in Portugal, they make a, a really strong spirit, you know, like, in, in, like kind of whiskey kind of type thing, but with the fruit called mendronio. And jams are very popular. I like to make fruit leathers with it. That's one of the things I like to do. But one of the best things to do, and this would be my, my, my top tip, is, well, after trying the fruit to see what what you think and realising that what gives it that red colour is these little grainy red structures on the outside of the fruit. But if you get the fruit and you mush them up and you squeeze all that pulp through a fine uh, muslin cloth or nylon cloth, the pulp that comes out is sweet, delicious, kind of like mango puree, but with the texture of a, a lovely silky velouté sauce or maybe a thick egg custard. And you can just eat that as it is. The kind of flavour is kind of reminiscent of kind of mango and passion fruit. And it goes very well uh, as an accompaniment to some yogurt or I like to make kind of little tarts a bit like um, a bit like a lemon meringue pie but substituting the lemon with strawberry tree fruit pulp it's so delicious so have a look now is the main season it really fruits November and December the berries are probably at their sweetest now 
And it's a lovely plant because the flowers and the fruit ripen at the same time. So the flowers are just finishing now, but they would have been there in November with the fruit. And the fruit takes 12 months to ripen. But yeah, go out and have a look now. And perhaps I should just add where to look for it. So because it's not a native plant, you will not find it in the hedgerow, but you will find it in parks and gardens and even um, as hedging. So that's where to look. And you may even be lucky enough to have one in your garden. Wow, Fergus, you never cease to amaze me with your knowledge. Who knew there was such a tropical-flavoured plant growing here on our doorsteps? And you're right, it does look pretty festive with the red baubles. That's all for this episode. If you enjoyed it, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review the podcast or share it with a friend who you think might also like it. Next week, we are joined by no less than Irish chef Richard Corrigan and Fergus will be back to talk to us about cleavers. See you next time. 